AM. American Majority. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org. This is Ned Ryan, and welcome to Episode 13, The Stamp Act and the Dawn of Popular Resistance. The past few episodes have alluded to a crucial moment when the actions of Parliament would finally trigger an unrestrained, concerted, reactionary effort by the colonists. And we have finally come to that point with this week's introduction of the Stamp Act of 1765. Historians point to the Stamp Act as the defining event of the pre-revolutionary days because of the uniting effect it had upon the previously ununited American colonies. After the summer of 1765, the American colonies' relations with Great Britain would never ever be the same. Now, because of the influential nature of the Stamp Act, I will take my time discussing the ins and outs of its history over the course of the next few weeks. In the weeks to come, I will go into more detail about the American patriots who came into their own in the wake of the Stamp Act's passage, including Samuel Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Patrick Henry, the Sons of Liberty, the Stamp Act Congress, and others. But today I will discuss the act itself, as well as the context in which it was passed, along with a brief history of its passage, reception, and repeal. Following the conclusion of the Seven Years' War and the outbreak of Pontiac's Rebellion, the British Parliament decided that it was prudent to maintain a standing army of 10,000 men in the North American colonies for the protection of the colonists from Indian attacks. However, Parliament had to find a way to finance such a massive outpost, along with servicing the national debt, which of course had doubled during the recent war with France. Over two years of more tame acts designed to prevent loss, Parliament began discussions of a Stamp Act, a direct tax applicable only to the American colonies for the sole purpose of raising revenue for the crown. In 1764, as the Grenville Parliament began considering ideas for taxation, a resolution was passed simply mentioning the possibility of a Stamp Act to be imposed on the colonies. In the past, Stamp Acts had been used in Great Britain for the same purpose, and they had achieved their goals. Stamp Acts were easily enforceable, and cheaply implemented, so it made sense to use this tactic as a tool to raise the funds necessary to finance an army and, quite frankly, help pay down the national debt. However, in discussing the possibility of an American Stamp Act, Parliament did not anticipate the reaction it would invite, and this was a costly misjudgment. In the summer of 1764, Massachusetts politician Samuel Adams received news that Parliament had a proposal for a Stamp Act on the table. This act would place a tax on virtually all printed documents, including legal contracts, newspapers, magazines, pamphlets, bills, even playing cards. Parliament would enforce the tax by requiring all of these documents to display a stamp to make them legally viable. To get this stamp on a paper, the publisher would have to pay a tax to the British government. Any publication not bearing the stamp would be null and void. Because they were a frequently used tactic, stamp acts were well known to Samuel Adams. He'd used this familiarity promptly and efficiently to organize a massive colonial resistance in 1765. Adams published an official response to the proposed act, and in it he highlighted a few of the ideological battles that would be fought in the immediate wake of the stamp act and all the way to the end of the revolution. Adams wrote, If our trade may be taxed, why not our lands? Why not the produce of our lands and everything we possess or make use of? This, we apprehend, annihilates our charter right to govern and tax ourselves. 
It strikes our British privileges, which, as we have never forfeited them, we hold in common with our fellow subjects who are natives of Britain. If taxes are laid upon us in any shape without our having a legal representation where they are laid, are we not reduced from the character of free subjects to the miserable state of tributary slaves? This statement mentions two fears shared by many colonists in 1765. First, Adams feared the precedent that the Stamp Act would set for taxation. If Parliament could tax printed documents, what could they not tax? Until this point, taxes on the colonies had only been external, meaning they had been levied on goods imported into the New World, and commerce conducted within the colonies was not taxed to any real noticeable degree. The Sugar Act was an external tax that burdened sugar and molasses merchants, but generally did not affect the lives of the average colonist. However, now that Parliament was attempting to assert its authority to tax paper, an item used by virtually everyone in some form or another, fears of future taxes on everyday items became much more widespread. Adams, for one, believed that such taxation would reduce the colonists to a state of virtual slavery, in which they would not have any rights and would be subject to the whims of a tyrannical monarch across the sea. This talk of slavery may sound exaggerated and over the top, but Adams and his cohorts had reason to fear some dis diminishment of their status as British subjects. Embedded in the act was a clause giving authority to the admiralty courts to enforce the stamp tax. The admiralty courts, if you remember, were given authority to enforce the Sugar Act. They had been set up as an efficient means of trying sailors accused of smuggling by denying them the right to a jury. The use of these courts to enforce the Stamp Act was a major cause for concern, as the Stamp Act had nothing to do with commerce on the high seas. If colonists could be tried without a jury for crimes committed outside the jurisdiction of the designated courts, how could they count on the British government to administer justice in a fair and impartial manner? Another cause for worry by the colonists was the developing trend of taxation without representation. This alarm had been sounded by Adams and others in reaction to the Sugar Act the previous year, but it did not gain popular traction until the Stamp Act was passed. In 1765, literature began circulating discussing the colony's lack of parliamentary representation, and the colonists began listening. A decade earlier at the Albany Conference, Benjamin Franklin had written, that it is supposed an undoubted right of Englishmen not to be taxed, but by their consent, given through their representatives, that the colonies have no representatives in Parliament. Franklin wrote these words in 1754. Now, in 1765, when the colonists were faced with a new threat, Franklin's statement was no less relevant. The colonists considered themselves to be Englishmen, and as such, they believed they had a fundamental right to not be taxed without being consulted and without being represented. The Stamp Act violated these rights, and the American colonists generally regarded as a blatant example of taxation without representation. This argument was heard and responded to by Parliament, however. The excuse for the prevailing system was known as virtual representation. Under this idea, Parliament basically argued that all Englishmen were represented by members of the House of Commons including those in North America. It is an undisputed fact that over 70% of British subjects were not eligible to vote due to pro property restrictions. However, Parliament claimed that according to the concept of virtual representation, those subjects' interests were still represented as those of Englishmen, 
and that this applied to the colonies as well. This was a savvy attempt by Parliament to maintain the status quo, but the colonists saw through the virtual representation argument and saw it for what it was, a thinly veiled dismissal of their complaints. Parliament had no desire to even consider the pleas or arguments of the colonists, and they made this obvious by formally refusing to admit any petitions into parliamentary debate. What they were interested in was raising revenue by whatever means available in order to remain financially afloat. Thus, despite the colony's efforts and petitions to prevent the Stamp Act's passage, Parliament levied the new tax in July of 1765. The British government did not expect the act to be received happily, but they severely underestimated the negative reaction that it would draw. Also, interestingly, Benjamin Franklin made the same mistake. Although he was a vocal opponent of the Stamp Act during its formation, Franklin was prepared to accept it when it finally passed. So, because he was in London at the time of its passage, he recommended a friend, John Hughes, to be appointed stamp distributor for the Philadelphia area. If Franklin had known what the reaction towards British agents involved in the Stamp Act would be, he would never have recommended a friend for this post. The colonial response was, to put it bluntly, swift, angry, organized, and at times violent. All 13 of the colonial legislatures addressed the issue, and 11 of them sent some formal resolution or petition to Parliament asking for the act's repeal. North Carolina and Georgia were the exceptions. Most famous among these acts of the legislatures was the document known as the Virginia Resolves. The Resolves, spearheaded by Patrick Henry, appealed to the rights of Englishmen and argued that the colonists were not second-class citizens, though they were being treated as such. I will not go into too much detail here, because I want to cover Henry and the Virginia Resolves in more detail in a later episode. In another reactionary effort, committees of correspondence were established in all 13 colonies, as a way to open lines of communication between the previously isolated settlements. The committees were usually composed of educated men appointed by colonial legislatures or councils. Their job was to coordinate efforts, spread ideas, and stay up to date on events happening elsewhere in North America. This communication was unprecedented and should not be overlooked. Until 1765, the colonies had only hinted at, at unity, in such events as the Albany Conference of 1754. However, for the most part, they had no interest whatsoever in each other's affairs. The Stamp Act changed this completely, and the committees of correspondence gave the colonies a stake in each other's affairs, thus beginning their unification as a nation. Another method of political resistance was the Stamp Act Congress, which met in New York City in October of 1765. The Congress consisted of delegates from nine colonies assembled for the sole purpose of drafting a collectively endorsed petition to the king. They met without any degree of secrecy, making a blatant display to the crown that they strongly felt the need to stand up for their own sovereignty and rights. I'll cover the Stamp Act Congress in greater detail in a future podcast as well. Finally, the reaction of the colonists, who were not affiliated with the colonial governments, to be quite blunt, was somewhat less couth. Street protests were organized in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and New York, and these incidents sometimes turned violent. On several occasions, stamp distributors were hanged or burned in effigy. Houses and public buildings were destroyed, and rioting broke out. The organization known as the Sons of Liberty was known for organizing violent or vandalistic 
acts such as tarring and feathering, arson, and most notably the Boston Tea Party. These events, again, will be, to, will, will be covered in more detail in a future podcast. Needless to say, the reactions to the Stamp Act were numerous and diverse. The act is heralded as the beginning of the massive resistance to the British imposition on the colonists, ultimately culminating in the Declaration of Independence and the Revolutionary War. The petitions of the colonial legislatures, the appeals of the representatives sent to England, and the mob violence of the colonists eventually prevailed, and the Stamp Act was repealed the following year. This was done not without the assistance of American sympathizers in Parliament, such as Edmund Burke, Isaac Barr, and William Pitt the Elder, who denounced the virtual representation argument on the floor of the House of Commons as the most contemptible idea that ever entered into the head of man. Despite the immediate success of the reactionary efforts in 1765, however, the cycle of taxation and rejection continued for another decade. Parliament continued trying to raise revenue, and the colonists were only further provoked and united with each successive measure. The violence and animosity built to the point of an all-out war, ultimately producing a new nation founded on freedom from oppression by one's own government. The journey to that fight began in earnest in 1765 with the Stamp Act, and we will continue the story of this influential event in the weeks to come. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org and written by Ned Ryan and Eric Josephson and recorded by Ned Ryan. If you enjoy this podcast on American history, be sure to check out the History of the Constitutional Convention by Ned Ryan at AmericanMajority.org or on iTunes. (laughs) 